You guys want to know a fun fact about myself? Every time I preach, I bring my water bottle on the stage and I never touch it again until I leave. I had that realization as I was walking up here. I was like, why am I even bringing this? Because I never actually drink out of it. Um, so now you know a fun fact about me. Yeah, hello. Someone said hi to me. I can't see because there's lights in my face. But um, I'm just going to jump right in tonight. What we are going to be talking about tonight is a very difficult topic because there's a lot of hurt involved. Um, yeah, fun, huh? Uh, but the reason that we're talking about this isn't just to talk about it. It's because we know that a lot of you have thought about this, and we know that a lot of you know people who have thought about this and have issue with why God would do what he did in the Old Testament. So um, in my own personal life, a year or so ago in my small group, I had a guy who uh, fell in love with Jesus, loved Jesus, and he said, I'm going to read the entire Bible over the summer because I just want to know so much about God. He was just like on fire, and he started reading the Bible, and midway through the summer, he messaged me, and he said, I can't follow God, and I said, you know, what happened? Because he was so on fire, and he said, I was reading the Old Testament, that's where I started, and I saw God do all these terrible things, and the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so therefore, God is still wrathful, vengeful, and wants to kill everybody, and I was like, no, that's not the God I know, and he was just like, I can't do it, and so this isn't just a thing for this student. I believe that some of you in this room have had that same thought. Maybe you know people who have that thought. Or it'll come up in the future because it's a topic that comes up a lot. And in that same story, I had a pastor over at my house about the same time. And he's a retired pastor who has been pastoring at different churches his entire life. And he just retired. And I told him about this student. And he says, well, what did you tell him? And I said, and I gave him all these like answers that I uh, knew to say, but I had not researched it much myself. So I just knew like the, this is what the Christian way to get around this. And he's like, and he kind of like studied me. His name was Max. Uh, and he, he goes, you know, I've read the Bible a lot of times. And he said that, Every time I get to one of those stories in the Old Testament, no matter how many times I read it, and no, I know God is good, it still gives me pause. And what does it mean to give you pause? You know, do you guys know what that means? It's like you just sit back and you're like, I don't get this, you know. And so for this pastor to say that after years and years and years and reading the Bible so many times, it would be insulting for me to come up here and say, I'm going to give you the answer to this question. Um, and so I just want to set expectations before we get into this that what I'm going to speak to you tonight isn't a gift-wrapped answer to this question where all of you are going to leave feeling great about all of this. But what I hope happens tonight is that you guys will take what I say and you will it will make you want to go do your own research and think about it more and see, like my student that I had in my small group, that what he said is that I cannot reconcile a God who would kill people with a God who is loving. Those two do not go together. 
And so I hope that tonight I can show you that there are ways, and we're not going to go into all of it because it's such a deep topic and we don't have time for that, but just to show you enough to where you would want to look into it more. Um, so what are these examples? If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, I just wanted to talk about a few different examples that get brought up. The first one being the flood, which happens in Genesis 6 through 8, where God tells Moses to build an ark, and he builds the ark, but in a flood. The second would be Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rains down fire from heaven on these cities that he says are sinful, and the only survivor is Lot and his family. And then there's the Egyptian firstborns uh, in Exodus 12, 11 through 12, where the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and to get the Israelites out, God is bringing plagues upon the Israelite people, and one of them is that every firstborn son in Egypt of Egyptians dies. And then the fourth one is interesting, because those first three are God or an angel of God killing people. And this fourth one, the Canaanites, which you see multiple stories of, it's kind of a it's not just one short story. It happens like all through the time when Israel is going through the promised land and after that even. But the Canaanites are the first time where God has man kill man, and it's not God. And then the fifth one is like it. It's the Amalekites, which is just another people that uh, the Israelites are asked to kill by God. So the one I want to talk about tonight, because it's the one that comes up the most, and I feel like people have the most problem with, is the Canaanites. Because like I said, it's different because it's the first time that God asked man to kill another man. And it's a hard topic because we all understand that life has value. And that's why when we see a story like this where people are being killed, we say that's wrong. You know, we were meant to live and we were, and God made us that way. So why are people being killed, especially if God is saying, I want you to go do this. So let's look at the scripture. First, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17, which says, however, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord, your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So you see in here it says, do not leave alive anything that breathes. And then if we jump forward in the story to Joshua, this is where the Israelites are carrying out this, what God has asked them to do. It says, when the, tr the trumpets sound, this is when they're going into Jericho, which is part of the land of Canaan. The army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, and everyone charged in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So you see that the Israelites did exactly what God asked them to do. God asked them to go in and leave nothing that breathes alive, and that's exactly what they did. So before we get into why God would do this, there are a couple misconceptions or easy outs people give to get around this when they try to explain it. And so I want to talk about those first because we don't want an easy out. We want the truth, right? So the first false perception is 
God never told them to do it. Which we read in scripture that God did tell them to do it just a moment ago. And yeah, so what that means, what that means is that for this to be true, that God never told them to do it, it would mean that scripture has an error, right? And the second one is like it, that Israel mistakenly thought God told them to do it, but he didn't. Um, And that's the more common one, because that's easier for you to go like, oh, I could see that, you know, we sometimes hear from God wrong. But the problem is, is that it's written in scripture, so it would also make scripture have error, if that was incorrect, because the the argument is that they thought God told them, and therefore they put it in their history that God told them to do it when God never did. But we believe that scripture has no error, therefore both of these would be false. And even though these are like easy ways to explain it away, like, oh, God never told them to do it, or they just misunderstood, it actually creates more problems than than it helps. Tim Keller has a quote uh, on this topic, And I just thought it was amazing. He said, many, many people do not believe the Bible is a divine and inerrant revelation at all. But if they don't believe in the authoritative word of God, then there is also no control or check against holy war. You could always say that your conscience or conviction or culture is calling you to attack and wipe out a small group of people or some group of people. But if... If I believe the orthodox view of the Bible, then there's a very real control and check on how I use political power and know that God has spoken without error in the scriptures and I seek to live in obedience to them. I neither add to his word nor subtract from it. So you see that if scripture has error, it would be easy for us as Christians to say, God told me that we are to go to war with crew, right? (laughs) And... Crew is great. I'm not digging on them. It was just a good example. But there'd be no check against that. How could you prove me wrong? Right? And so by Scripture being inerrant, we know that if it doesn't line up with Scripture, which us going to war with crew does not line up with Scripture, then we know that it's not right. You guys get it? So that's why it's important not to explain these away this way, because if we do, then we open up a can of worms on the other end. So, God, in the same chapter of Deuteronomy, talks about how to go to war. And it's very different than what you'd see, especially in that time period, which is a very brutal time period if you just study it historically. But the way God tells the Israelites to go to war is just very different. And if I read through Deuteronomy 20, we're not going to read through it, but if you wanted to pull it up, I'm just going to say a verse and what God basically told them to do. Um, it gives them kind of like, this is how you would go to war. First, in verse 3, the priest was to bless the army before battle. That's a good thing to do. Um, Second, in verse 4, that they were to trust God for victory. Because if God told them to do it, they should trust him for victory, right? Verse 5 through 7, this is where it gets interesting. Soldiers were excused from going to war for personal reasons, including if they were afraid. So they had a choice to go or not to go. And it says in there that even if they were like engaged to be married, they had just bought property. There's a lot of reasons, not just being scared, but like they had a lot of ways to get out of going if they wanted to. 
And then in verse 10 through 12, enemy cities were offered a chance for peace. They didn't just go in, destroy in a conquest and give them no chance. They always offered them a chance for peace. In verse 13 through 15, when the cities were taken, men were executed, women and children joined Israel, which Canaan is the exemption to this. And I couldn't tell you why exactly God made an exemption specifically for Canaan, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But normally when Israel went to war, the men were the ones executed. The women and children would actually join Israel and they would be allowed to keep their possessions. And then lastly, in verse 19 and 20, the no, scor no scorched earth policy, which basically meant they wouldn't burn down the city and burn down the trees and basically destroy everything. They would leave it. And so you see from this that this is not normal warfare that we would see in that time period. That people had a choice whether to go or not. They could get out. They, would leave, they always gave an opportunity for peace. And they would let people keep their possessions, which is interesting. Those that would join them would maintain their possessions. So why would God command killing? Now that we've kind of established the false perceptions and God's law for war, it's still war, right? So why would God kill people if he loves us? In Ezekiel 33:11, it says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So God says in this word, which we've established is, as we see it, has no error. God says, I do not take pleasure in killing the wicked. I would love for them to turn to me. And so that gets us into, first, with Canaan specifically, and as I'm talking through this, we're talking about Canaan, but a lot of these apply to all of the things we talked about and even ones that I didn't mention because there's also more examples of this. But the first thing is that Canaan, if you study the Bible, had a chance to repent. There's even a story where God says, it would be unjust of me to go kill the Canaanites because they have not yet reached the point where they cannot be saved. Canaanites... For those of you who don't know, they, had, they were very sinful people. And we won't get into all the stuff that they did that would warrant this, but just to give you kind of a glimpse into Canaanite society is that, one, they worshipped idols, but to their idols, they would sacrifice their children on the altars of these idols, and then they would have orgies to celebrate this sacrifice. So you see that it was a very twisted, messed up culture. And... God, as a loving God, loves all of humanity. And that brings me to the second reason is that it was getting rid of the Canaanites was to preserve humanity. Because if we go back to the chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 20, and I'm going to start back at 17, which we already read, but 18 is what I really want you to pay attention to. It says, for you, have, for you must devote them to the complete destruction, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, uh, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And then he tells you why. So that you can teach, so that, uh, so that they cannot teach you to do the things, all the detestable things that they do 
for their gods and cause you to sin against the Lord your God. So God says, I don't, I, you need to do this because if you don't, you will catch this. Almost like a disease. It's like when you get in the outpost, at least if you're a guy and you do the boom snap, right? I never told anybody in my small group, maybe jokingly, I never told them, you need to do a boom snap, right? They saw us do it, and they start doing it, or trying to do it. <laughs> Some people have not mastered it yet, and that's okay. You'll get there. Um, but we did, not, we did not, as the outpost, say, you need to do a boom snap, right? It's in culture, which this is a type of a culture, you don't teach people. They just catch what's around them. So if you were to leave the Canaanites, what they did, their detestable practices, would be picked up by all around them. If Israel would have settled next to them, they would have picked up all these detestable things. And it's like a cancer. We all know, we've all been touched by cancer in some way. And when you have a cancer, what do you do? You have two options. You can live with it, and it will spread and cause your death. Or you can cut it out, which causes pain and may even cause you to not be able to be the same as you once were, but you live. Uh, at a young age, I think she was about 16, she got cancer in her leg. What's the bone up here in your leg? Femur, yeah. I'm not an anatomy person. But your femur, she had bone cancer in her femur at 16 years old. And she was told, you're going to lose your leg. We have to cut your leg off, but you will live. Um, and you can imagine as a 16-year-old what it would mean to lose something that important to you. And she believed God that, one, she was like, yes, you know, do what you need to do to save my life. But she believed God that she was going to keep her leg, and everyone told her she was crazy. And even the doctor said, we're not keeping your leg. And when she woke up from surgery, she asked the nurse, she's like, is my leg still there? And the nurse is like, of course you still have your leg. And she like flipped the covers off and both of her legs were still there. And they had, were able to um, replace the bone with like a titanium version of it. And she actually became like a major like CrossFit person was like able to do so much still because she was willing to take the sacrifice and came out better on the other end. Um, and so that just to give you an example of you know, maybe why, like if you see humanity as one body, why maybe cutting off one might be better for the rest of us, which is not in itself a good reason, but it's something to think about. And another reason why the Canaanites, as I mentioned, they were given a chance to repent. God in the Bible gave them a lot of chances to repent of what they were doing and to come to him, and they refused. And an example that up to the last second they could have repented and joined Israel is the story of Rahab. If you're not familiar with Rahab, she was in the city of Jericho, the Canaanite city, which we read about earlier, and she, she became an Israelite because she submitted. She said, I'm not going to be a Canaanite anymore. I want to be with you guys, and she repented of what she was doing, and she was a prostitute, and she actually was so blessed in her repentance that she actually is in the line of Jesus. She's in Jesus' lineage. So all that's fine and good, 
But what about the innocent? Because we talked about that God didn't just kill the men as like he normally would, but he killed the women and the children. So what about the children who had nothing to do with all of these detestable things that they were doing? Why, why did they have to be killed? And this is people's biggest complaint on this, is why the innocent? And there's not a great answer to this because we don't understand everything God does. But the argument here is that Those who were guilty were guilty, and those who were not were not. And if you view things from an earthly perspective, where death is the end, then it'd be terrible to kill somebody. If If you view it from an eternal standpoint, where there's heaven and hell after, then death is not the end. And the idea is that those who were wicked and deserve punishment were got what they deserve because they deserve judgment. Those who were innocent went to paradise with their father. And it was better for them to die and go to paradise than to be corrupted by their culture and then eventually end up dying and going to hell. And so William Lane Craig on this topic talks about who was wronged in this situation. And he said, So whom does God wrong in commanding the destruction of the Canaanites? Not the Canaanite adults, for they were corrupt and deserving judgment. Not the children, for they inherit eternal life. So who who is wronged? Ironically, I think the most difficult part of this whole debate is the apparent wrong done to the Israeli soldiers themselves. Can you imagine what it would be like to break into some house and kill a terrified woman and her children? The brutalizing effects on these Israeli soldiers is is disturbing. So his argument is that the children are in paradise, the innocent are in paradise, the wicked are not, and they were deserving of it. But why, as we said, this is the first time God has asked man to do this, why did God have them do it instead of himself doing it, where they have to live with this now? that they had to break into a house. I can't even imagine what he says, imagine breaking into a house and killing a terrified woman and her children. I don't even want to try to imagine that. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, the Israelites had these sacrifices that they would do on altars to, for sin and the, and the ideas for a sin offering. But I believe that the sin offering was more than just a sin offering. One is it cost you something. And I think that disturbing image is costly, that you have to live with it. But two is that if you imagine an innocent baby sheep that's being brought because you have sinned and you have to lay it on this altar and watch the priest cut it and watch the blood drain out of it, it's like very gruesome. And that's something, one, that it costs you something, you lost your sheep, but two, when you go to that sin again, you're going to be like, I remember what happened last time. I don't want to have to go through that again. And what God, I believe, is doing here is he's showing them this, I take sin seriously, and this is the consequence if you follow in their footsteps. That I care so much about you that I don't want you to fall into the same thing that the Canaanites did. And so I want you to remember what happens when when these things come up. So why Israel? They're God's chosen people. 
but why? They were also sinners. They also did wrong. How could they judge Canaan if they also had done wrong? How could God use them in that way? And I think the story that kind of shows you this picture is Habakkuk. If you've read the book of Habakkuk, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. And ironically, the Israelites do start picking up practices from what the Canaanites did. Not all of them, but they start worshiping idols and doing these things they're not supposed to do. And Habakkuk goes to God and he says, are you not going to judge Israel? Because they are so sinful. And you should read Habakkuk. It's a five-chapter book. It's really short, but it's really good. And this is my abridged version. This is the Dylan International version. But he says, how are you not going to judge Israel? They're sinful. And God basically responds to him and says, don't worry about it. I'm And <laughs> Habakkuk doesn't like this answer. He, he's like, Babylon, Babylon's more sinful than Israel. How could Babylon judge Israel when they're even more sinful? And God's answer is that he will also judge Babylon. And those are just the first two chapters of Habakkuk. And then through the next... Through the next three chapters, Habakkuk discovers that God is completely just in all he does. And that even though he may use someone who's not worthy to judge someone else, he will judge everyone according to what they've done. And he is a righteous judge. And so... Like I said at the beginning of this, this is a hard topic, and this is not covering everything. And there's probably some of you, when I brought up this topic, you had a thought in your head that you're like, good, I'm going to get an answer for this. And you now are sitting here, and you're like, I don't have an answer. And as I said, this is not all-inclusive, and there's not a way to just say, here's the answer to all of your questions about why God did what he did in the Old Testament. But I, my hope is in this as I said, that you would see that maybe there is a reason. Maybe, like, giving God the benefit of the doubt. And worship team, you can come up. Um, but just to think about, as this guy in my small group said, I cannot reconcile a God who is all loving with a God who kills people. And to see, through what I've said tonight, and maybe some revelation God's given you that maybe there is a way not to just bail God out, but that he does truly love us and what he does is because he truly loves humanity. And I want you to look into and research and go into whatever you need to, not to find a God an out because he doesn't need an out. I believe God is loving in all he does. And I believe there is an answer whether he gives it to us or not. And we don't understand all of his ways, but um, I'm just going to pray as we close tonight.